Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the history of the Gotha community in the greater Orlando area. They were rebuilding the character of their old German culture, and they were building it in the woods of Florida in Gotha. We'll discuss the shipwreck and adventures of Pierre Viau, it's unbelievable. And uh, in fact, uh, at this time period, the late 18th and early 19th century, contemporary critics did not believe Vio. Uh, they thought it was merely a piece of fiction. He may have been shipwrecked, but he concocted much of these stories. And we'll talk about the Mosquito Beaters Club. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Ride of the Valkyries was first performed in 1870 as part of the Richard Wagner opera Die Valkyra at the National Theater of Munich, Germany. By the end of that decade, land was being purchased for a German colony in Florida. Gotha, Germany has existed since the Middle Ages. Charlemagne, who united most of Western Europe, mentioned the town in a document he signed in the year 775. The small community of Gotha, Florida was officially designated on April 20, 1885. The town is located in Orange County between Ocoee and Windermere. While living in Buffalo, New York in 1878, German printer Henry Hempel invented and patented a printing tool that revolutionized the way that pages were set up for printing. With new wealth earned from his invention, Hempel decided to create a German colony in Florida. Kathleen Clare is director of the Gotha Rural Settlement Association. Hempel was a printer. Uh, in, he grew up in Gotha, Germany, specifically Walterhausen, Germany. And he, as a young boy, he worked in different printing offices learning his trade. And he came to the United States, and even before he settled in Buffalo, New York, he actually traveled around and lived in five different West, Midwestern states and eventually settled in New York. Uh, he was in Missouri before he came to New York, and there he established or started a patent for an invention for a printing tool. And uh, when he made up a first application, but then he, it was after he settled in Buffalo that he actually started to go through and finalize the patent, which was basically 1878. It's the year before he comes to Gotha. 
Hempel came to Central Florida in 1879 and began purchasing land. By 1883, he had acquired 1,000 acres where he created a town plat. He named the colony after his hometown in Germany and invited other Germans to join him there. To generate lumber, Hempel established a sawmill. This allowed for the construction of a general store, a post office, a school, a community hall, and other buildings in Gotha. He supplied wood shingles for some of the first homes in Altamont Springs, Winter Park, and Maitland. His mill also provided orange crates for the local citrus industry. Gotha in the 1890s was a very lively community. It taught gymnastics, it had a Turner Hall, it had musical events, it had dance events. They put on even a big show of the minstrelry. They even had a bowling alley in the 1890s because of the background, the intellect of these German people. They were rebuilding the character of their old German culture and they were building it in the woods of Florida in Gotha. At the same time that Hempel was organizing his German colony in Florida, the German Freethinkers League was founded by philosopher Ludwig Buchner. Freethinkers believed in individuality of thought and forming one's own opinions based upon logic, reason, and empirical data rather than authority, tradition, or religious dogma. Kathleen Clare. Hempel was not just building a little town. Hempel was a free thinker, and he was actually looking to build a colony of people that had similar perspectives. And a free thinker was the person that really thought of individuality of thought, word, and deed, and that this would be separate from church, state would be separate from religious. And uh, they're very strong thinkers. It's uh, secular points of view is what they were espousing. Horticulturalist and naturalist Dr. Henry Neerling began purchasing land at Gotha in 1885. At first, Neerling only visited Gotha for a few months each year. He was at that time working for the Milwaukee Public Museum, and he did not officially move down to Gotha until 1902. What he was doing, he was actually making trips every year for a couple of months in November in the cooler weather, and he was starting his garden from the very beginning. Actually, he didn't actually come to Gotha until 1886, but from that point on, he worked with one of the Gotha people, uh, and one of his neighbors, actually, who, was, who had a fern, fernery, a large fernery, uh, Franz uh, Barthel's. And I think that he did a lot of work when Neerling wasn't around, and that's how the garden really got started. He would send samples of plants from the north or things that he had collected, and he had this going long before he actually set up residence. But because by the turn of the century, you know, the early teens, it already was a very popular place to visit in Florida. It was a tourist place. Neerling created Palm Cottage Gardens, a tropical garden that became a popular tourist destination in the early 20th century. He also developed an experimental testing facility on the property where he helped to establish Florida's ornamental horticulture. Neerling wrote many articles for scholarly journals and magazines and became best known for his caladiums. Neerling Gardens was placed on the National Register of Historic Sites in 2000. Many of the German families who first settled Gotha in the 1880s made their living in the citrus industry, when the big freeze of 1894-95 devastated orange crops in Florida, some of those families left the state. 
As the citrus industry recovered in the early 20th century, new families moved to Gotha, but the community began to lose its distinctively German identity. The citrus industry is going, it started up around the Civil War, and it actually picked up after the war, and it continued, was going quite well until the freezes. Gotha is unaffected. It's basically German people, European people that are developing groves, smaller groves, not very large ones. They're at that time, they're developing their citrus industry. And when they left, there was a time period, you know, from around 1895 to the beginning of uh, the 1900s, where things were just in bad shape. But after 1900, you start to get people... Uh, the citrus industry is coming back, gradually coming back. And as it's gradually coming back, it's offering job opportunities. And what you get is migration a lot from the neighboring states like Georgia and uh, Alabama, places like that. But you get a different group of people because you're getting a lot of people that are migratory. And they're the migratory workers and uh, essentially trying to find jobs and you just get a different group of people, less educated but interested in having the day jobs. So that's how Gotha shifted because before it was more, much more of the gentlemen farmers who would hire local people to maintain their groves while they were other places or some people were very, became very involved, like the Ragners, the Barthels, and there were certain families that carried on no matter what. But you would get a big shift after 1900. In fact, I have an old friend who said that Georgia moved into Gotha. The urban sprawl of the greater Orlando area is encroaching upon Gotha. The Gotha Rural Settlement Association, Incorporated, hopes to preserve the few remaining historic structures in the town. The organization also wants to share the unique history of Gotha to help revive a sense of community in the town. We do have a few buildings. We have an old Gothic church that was built in 1913. That needs an awful lot of upkeep. We would like to uh, landscape and uh, improve the... Uh, we have actually these islands that the county put in, and they don't work very well. We would like to update them. We would like to create more of a community feel and really get out there and show people that we have respect for our community and we're interested in not only preserving it, but our second prong is that we would like to bring back community. I grew up in the Gotha community. My family came in 1911. There was always events, picnics, dinners, and different kinds of things that the women's clubs that were doing, very, it was very active. That has died since the 1990s. Many of the old people passed away, and then there was just a shift where nobody, nobody did anything. And um, there's the group of us now that would really like to bring back a sense of community, not just preserving it, that it has to be preserved, but actually get people to come out of their houses and interact with each other. Uh, we've been involved recently with a project, and uh, one of our members had to go door to door and found, talk to a lot of people. A lot of people said they would love to have Gotha come back as a community. Kathleen Clare is director of the Gotha Rural Settlement Association. The Gotha community is located in southwest Orlando at the intersection of Florida's Turnpike and Florida State Road 408. Gotha was originally a German colony established in 1885.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers is also available as a podcast from your favorite podcast provider, and you can listen to archived editions of the program anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Don't miss the television series version of Florida Frontiers on great public television stations, including WUCF Orlando, WJCT Jacksonville, WFSU Tallahassee, and WPBT South Florida. You can find a preview of the program at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, you can become a member of the Florida Historical Society and receive our great journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. French composer Claude Debussy captured in music the waves of a windy sea in his orchestral work La Mer. French mariner Pierre Viot captured in writing his experiences with the waters off Florida's Gulf Coast in 1766. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, who was Pierre Viot? Pierre Viau was a French uh, merchant mariner. He also served in the French Navy. He was born uh, in France on the uh, western, on the Atlantic coast of France uh, in 1725. And at the age of 16, he took to the sea and uh, started his career, uh, starting as just a cabin boy and made his way all the way up to captain. Uh, and uh, by the time of the Seven Years' War, uh, he's sailing across the Atlantic. Uh, he was a, a seasoned veteran. He had visited uh, Africa, had uh, seen the Pacific, uh, and traveled extensively throughout the Caribbean region. Uh, and it was in uh, 17 in the 1760s uh, when he decided to uh, take a contract delivering supplies to uh, Santo Domingue, which was a French colony uh, we now know of as uh, Haiti and the island of Hispaniola uh, in 1766. And it it was in early 1766 when uh, he took another contract to deliver goods uh, over to the uh, North American uh, French territory of uh, Louisiana uh, to New Orleans, which would have been a, a relatively routine trip. However, they encountered some serious storms and were shipwrecked off the uh, Florida's off of Florida's Gulf Coast. Well, Vio lived to tell the tale of his ordeal and, and wrote a book about his experiences. That's right. And, you know, a shipwreck off of Florida's coast, especially in the late 18th century, was not uncommon. Uh, there were still very few uh, accurate topographical maps or, or coastal maps of the region. So uh, merchant mariners such as Vio were not uh, terribly familiar with the coastline of Florida and the uh, southeastern Gulf states. Uh, so shipwrecks occurred quite often. And unfortunately, uh, at this particular point of the year, there were a series of storms that battered their uh, small ship. Uh, Vio and, and his uh, uh, crew of 14, including the uh, captain's wife and, and young teenage son, uh, were shipwrecked uh, somewhere off of uh, what is now St. Mark's. Uh, um, they landed on, on the series of coastal islands that they called the Dog Islands, uh, which still exist today, but there were uh, shifting sandbars, and it's very likely that their ship struck one of these sandbars just off the coast of Dog Island. Uh, they all survived the initial wreck, although, uh, according to his account, uh, it took quite a bit of time for them to secure a boat, to gather up enough supplies, and actually make it ashore uh, on Dog Island. At that point, they sort of assessed their situation, but realized how bleak 
their, their situation actually was, because here they are some four miles off of the mainland uh, in 18th century uh, West Florida, where civilization did not exist. Uh, you know, they had just left a, a prosperous island of uh, uh, Hispaniola, were heading to New Orleans, and now they're uh, lost uh, really in this borderlands region somewhere in between. Now, Vio, uh, in his uh, account, uh, regales the the reader with the uh, trials and, and tribulations of of a uh, shipwreck. What one might expect, uh, you know, a shipwreck crew. Uh, the uh, exposure uh, to the elements began to wear down the crew. Remember, this is uh, January into February uh, in west uh, western part of Florida. Uh, it can get quite cold. Uh, they were continually hammered with storms. Their their clothes were were torn. Uh, they could. Uh, procure very few supplies. They only had a few weapons that they actually got off of the ship. Uh, and actually, while they were on Dog Island, they were approached by uh, a group of Native Americans, or about four or five family members, uh, who, after some deliberation, agreed to ferry the surviving uh, uh, maroon sailors to St. Mark's, which would have been the closest, at that time, British territory, because uh, uh, the British had just taken over Florida in 1763. Uh, Unfortunately, though, uh, the uh, Indians did not uh, uh, really care about getting them to the mainland. They cared more about separating the crew, breaking up the 14 passengers, and what they did was ferry them one by one to different islands. So Vio, uh, uh, by late February, is on an island just off of Dog Island, probably a small sandbar, uh, with only the uh, ship's wife, uh, the ship's captain, who decided to go ashore but unfortunately drowned, and the young son and Vio's slave. Uh, and they had no uh, supplies whatsoever, and they were abandoned by, uh, by the Indian and his family. Uh, they eventually fashioned a small canoe, made it to the mainland. Um, but by this point, and we can, uh, you, you tend to get the, um, the despair and the tone of, of Vio's writing, um, they were essentially hopeless. They were now on the mainland but had no idea where they were. Uh, the young son of the of uh, the captain was becoming ill. Vio convinces the wife to leave the son uh, uh, on the shore as they try and make their way over to St. Mark's. Uh, at one point, he actually kills his slave, and this is where uh, I think most people found that the story so sensational. He killed his slave, and he and, and the captain's wife actually cannibalized uh, this person. They ate human flesh to survive. Um, eventually, they were uh, they encountered some British soldiers who had uh, who were patrolling around St. Mark's. Uh, the British soldiers took them to the fort. Uh, the governor of West Florida gave them refuge, uh, kind of brought them back to health. They actually, according to Vio, went back to the island and found the young teenage boy who was still alive after some 18 days uh, with no food or water. Uh, they they uh, reunited, uh, made it back to St. Mark's, and, and the governor of West Florida actually gave him money and, and safe passage back to France. So Vio made it back to France. He wrote this incredible narrative, uh, and it was gobbled up by European audiences. Hmm, That's really a harrowing story. Well, Vio's book itself is also an interesting artifact. Uh, Tell us about this physical book. We're actually looking at the first English translation of the Shipwreck and Adventures of Monsieur Pierre Vio. It was published in 1771 uh, in London. It was translated by Mrs. Elizabeth Griffith, who was uh, uh, well known for producing uh, these late 18th century uh, British novels. And she was fascinated with the story, as was much of Europe. Now, again, Something like this, this these sensational encounters. Vio also uh, relays a story about killing an owl alligator with a sharpened stick and fighting off uh, what he calls wild lions. You know, if 
if he did encounter them, it's very likely they were uh, Florida Panthers. But um, it, it's unbelievable. And uh, in fact, uh, at this time period, the late 18th and early 19th century, contemporary critics did not believe Vio. Uh, they thought it was merely a piece of fiction. He may have been shipwrecked, but he concocted much of these stories. Uh, it wasn't really until the late 20th century that modern historians have pieced together his story and corroborated a lot of the evidence that Vio uh, uh, lays out in his narrative. So we do know that he was shipwrecked. Um, there were contemporary accounts uh, produced by the British officials at St. Mark's uh, that uh, uh, corroborate uh, uh, Vio's story. So we know that it actually happened, which makes it uh, all the more fascinating. Uh, so the the book itself, like I said, was published in uh, the first English edition in 1771, which is what we're looking at here. It's been rebound, but part of the original leather binding still exists. And uh, it was subsequently published in uh, four or five uh, English editions. It's been published in German, in Finnish. Uh, it's still in publication today. Uh, like I said, there's a late, uh, a, a more recent, rather, uh, English translation that's available uh, now that's only about 20 years old that includes a lot of the more recent historical and archaeological evidence evidence uh, of some of the shipwreck sites in and around the Dog Island region uh, that he, anybody can pick up today and, and you can kind of transform yourself back to the, uh, uh, the very difficult situation that, uh, that Vio and his uh, uh, contemporaries experienced. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Every year during the second weekend in March, hundreds of people gather on Florida's Space Coast to attend the Mosquito Beaters annual gathering. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, the people who attend the gathering remember East Central Florida before it was called the Space Coast. What's happening, I'm sorry to say, is that the founding members are slowly one by one dying off and it's now being passed to their children and these are children who left the confines of a small town like Cocoa and Brevard County and they moved out in the world and it's going to be interesting to see if they cling to this allegiance or this memory as strongly as their parents did and if the mosquito beaters can survive, say, the next decade, they'll be around a long time. That is Dr. Nick Wynn, Director Emeritus of the Florida Historical Society. He took time out to talk to me about the Cocoa Base Mosquito Beaters Club. The organization was named after the mosquito beater, which was an ordinary object found in many homes throughout Central Florida. It was handmade and appeared in most every household. It was crafted using a wooden handle from a broomstick that was cut about six inches long, and dried palm leaves were bundled together around the handle to create the beater. This was essentially a fly swatter, yet none purchased in any store but crafted from items around one's home. Dr. Wynn speculates how this specific item found its way to Central Florida. As a historian, I'm always attracted by artifacts and items like that. I'm amazed that people still know how to use them. Now, I grew up in rural South Georgia. We had mosquitoes, but we didn't have this because we didn't have palm fronds. But we had gallberry, and we would put together bundles of gallberry twigs to do the same thing. 
And they were a little bit uh, different, although you could use this one because we use gallberry bundles to sweep yards uh, to clean uh, sand yards. You could do this. You could sweep the porch with this if you, if you, if you had to. There's a similarity, a difference in material, but a similarity of practical uses that sort of spans regions. And I would venture to say they were doing the same thing in Mississippi or Louisiana, Alabama, uh, any of the, these areas where they just simply adapted what was at hand to serve the same purpose. Has mosquito control improved? and Central Florida boomed in the 1960s, there was no need for the mosquito beater, and places like Cocoa transformed. The life that produced the mosquito beater vanished. Dr. Wynn tells us about this transition. Well, it was a great uh, symbol because during the early part of the 20th century and growing up even in the mid part of the 20th century, it was some places were so isolated they had no uh, electricity. Certainly, uh, there was uh, no air conditioning. You relied on smudge pots uh, to keep the mosquitoes away. Uh, you relied on mosquito beaters that were hanging by the door to beat them off the door and to beat them off yourself. And you did have screens uh, in many cases, but sometimes you didn't. You just had wooden shutters. It was uh, it was pretty much of a frontier, and that didn't really begin to change until the space program in the early part of the 60s. And that was one of the reasons why the space program is here, simply because it was still a sparsely settled area. It was an area that had vast open territory and it fronted the Atlantic Ocean. By the 1990s, a growing group of people formed the Mosquito Beaters Club in Cocoa to host reunions and reminisce about times gone by when a mosquito beater was the quickest way to create comfort against the ubiquitous insect. Of course, what did they use to name their club and maintain as a symbol of that organization to remember the time gone by, but the beater itself? And I think what they're trying to do is to not recapture the good old days. I don't think you can do that, but I think they're trying to preserve what they consider to be the best values of bygone uh, era. They, uh, this friendship, lifelong friendship, a sense of camaraderie, and they, uh, they go to great extremes to do this. If you've looked at their magazine uh, that they publish once a year, it's filled with stories of people talking about, writing about things that aren't world-shattering, but they're important because it just triggers a memory, and they call it the memory book, and uh, it's true, and I think that's what they're doing. And they realize, as I do as I get a little bit older, that times are changing, and uh, people no longer have the same viewpoint or the same experiences or even have a sense of values that they had before. They're changing, too, and... I can well understand it. I'll be 70 my next birthday, and I can well understand this desire to hang on to those things that played an important role in your life and try to preserve them and pass what you can to the younger generation. That was Dr. Nick Wynn. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida Podcast. You can find it on iTunes and on the Internet. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, listen to our podcast, and join us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.